0: Well, good morning, again, everyone. We're we're in Matthew chapter four. We're not looking at the whole chapter, but we are looking at the story of the temptation of Christ in uh, v- verses one through eleven in Matthew chapter four. Bobby read it. I'm not going to read it again. Um, and there's a lot here. This is a really profound. Occurrence that happen in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ it says so much about who He is as the God-Man and as the only mediator between God and men. Uh, and so, without much introduction, let, let's just dive right in. So, the temptation of Christ, Matthew chapter four, verses one through eleven, and the first thing that Matthew sets before us is the setting, verses 1 and 2. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Jesus was led by the the Holy Spirit into this circumstances event that ends up unfolding and... uh, that means then that this was the will of God for Jesus' life. It was the will of God that his son, uh, who was just baptized at the end of chapter 3, and about whom God spoke from heaven in verse 17, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. It was God's will that that son would go into the wilderness in order to be tempted by the devil. And the word tempted there, uh, parazo, means to try, to prove in either a good or bad sense, or to tempt. So every time the Bible uses this word, it's not always in a negative sense. For example, in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 17, the writer of the book of Hebrews, when he looks back at the Old Testament story of Abraham offering up his son Isaac, uh, he wrote, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And the one who tested Abraham was God himself. And God does not tempt anyone. So uh, I think here in the temptation of Christ, we see a vivid illustration of what the, um, Moses in the book of Genesis wrote about in Genesis fifty twenty when he said to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So here in this same set of circumstances, the temptation of the Lord Jesus, there are two motives going on. Satan, the devil, is tempting Jesus. He's trying to entice Jesus to sin. But in the same event, God's purpose was to test Jesus. And the same word fits. And through all of this, Jesus was becoming more qualified, more fit to be our Savior, if, if that is even imaginable. In Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 through 9, this was, this was God's purpose. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, and surely that includes his temptation... He became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. That's why the infant, baby Jesus, didn't die on the cross. That's why the boy, Jesus, didn't die on the cross. That's why Jesus at 30 years old, 29 let's say, years old, didn't die on the cross. In in order to be qualified, to fulfill all righteousness, And to be the only mediator between God and man, Jesus had to go through all of these experiences that he did, including the temptation. But he needed to not only go through this temptation, he needed to withstand, he needed to conquer Satan. And that's the next figure here in verse 1, by the devil, the devil. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. Uh, The wilderness probably was the general area of the wilderness where John the Baptist was baptizing. It's somewhere in that Judean wilderness, the the desert. Yes, even more of a desert wilderness than what we're used to in that area. But he was uh, to be tempted by the devil. And the word there is diabolos. And literally, that means slanderer. That's what the devil is, and that's what he does. He slanders us. He slanders God. And it also means adversary. And sure enough, the devil is against everything that God is for. And he's our adversary as well. He wants to destroy us eternally. That's his name given in Revelation 9 and verse 11, the destroyer. And we always need to remember that. The devil doesn't exist just to trip us up, just to make life inconvenient for us, just to make us sad. The devil's objective is to destroy us. And that means to have more company with himself in the lake of fire, which burns forever and ever. And also, just peeking ahead a little bit, we're talking about the devil, Diabolos. In verse 3, he's called the the tempter. So this is how he destroys. This is how he slanders, and he plays out this role as our adversary. He he tempts tempts us. He somehow sets sin before us and he somehow is able to influence us in such a way as he deceives us about the consequences of sin, the evil of sin. He tempts us. And that was the role that the devil played here in Jesus's. Temptation. Matthew's description of the setting continues in verse 2. Speaking of Jesus, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I was curious, so I googled it. How long can a person survive without food? And by the way, I do understand this to be... um, Food and not 40 days and 40 nights without water, because he ends up talking about bread and food. But I looked it up, and uh, on verywellhealth.com, they asked the question how long it says, how long you can go without food varies, but it's estimated that one can live for 43 to 70 days before dying from starvation. So Jesus is forty days into that, and no, no kidding. He was hungry. He was not only hungry; he wasn't well at this point. He was approaching death by starvation. Very, very weak. Very, very vulnerable. I uh, think of myself when I have to give blood, and it's a you have to fast. Um, so I try to make it early in the morning, and then, by the time I eat lunch or my late breakfast i'm I feel like I can't survive you know I'm knocking on death 's door and here 's Jesus going forty days and forty nights without eating. He was extremely hungry, and there is a purpose in all of that, and it was to to show to leave no shadow of doubt that the explanation for Jesus' resisting these temptations, his victory over the devil, would lie not in Jesus' physical strength, but in his identity as the Son of God. So that's the setting. Secondly, Matthew tells us Uh, about these uh, three rounds of actual temptation. So here the temptation actually begins, and the first round is given for us in verses 3 and 4. And the tempter, the devil, came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. In essence, the devil is saying here to Jesus, use your divine power as the Son of God to miraculously relieve yourself of this extreme hunger. And it seems reasonable because as we've seen, he was extremely hungry, unhealthily hungry. So why was this a temptation? Why was this a a temptation? Well, at least two reasons. If If you think about it, if Jesus would have complied with the devil, it would have validated the devil's premise. Did you notice? If you are the son of God, then do this trick. But Jesus had just been affirmed as the Son of God by God's word in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 17. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And so Satan is basically saying, that's not enough, do this, if you are the Son of God. And I believe this is reminiscent of what we see in the garden when, the Satan, when the Satan in the form of a serpent approaches Eve and basically says, Did God really say, injecting doubt, injecting uncertainty into the heart concerning the authority and trustworthiness of God's word? But not only that, but this was a temptation because if Jesus did that, if he indeed turned those stones into loaves of bread, then he would be taking matters into his own hands rather than relying on his his heavenly Father. Remember that Jesus was a true man. He is God of very gods, but he's also a true human being with a true human body and a true human soul. And it would be short-circuiting the work that God had given his son to do. Jesus would later say, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And for Jesus to just say, I, I'm hungry, I've had enough, and zap some stones into loaves of bread, it would be short-circuiting that work that he was sent into this world to accomplish by God. And so it was a temptation. Notice what Matthew goes on to say in verse 4. This is Jesus' response This is his uh, counterattack against Satan. And uh, you know how this is going to go. Jesus repeatedly says, it is written in all of these temptations. It is written, it is written, it is written. In fact, he's going to say it four times. He's going to repeatedly refer to the Old Testament scriptures To rebut these temptations from Satan. And in this case, he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3 Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is not denying that he desperately needed bread, he was more hungry than I will probably ever imagine. He's not denying the reality that we need food. But we don't just need food. We don't just need physical bread. We need that, but we also need the word of God. And not only do we need the word of God, we need to live by the word of God. Not just on Sundays, hear the word of God once a week and then live the rest of the week by the word of man. But live day by day, moment by moment, trial by trial, temptation by temptation. Live by the word of God. And by the way, we experience this temptation when we are enticed to meet our legitimate physical needs in illegitimate ways. When we want to short-circuit the word of God to get something done, even when that thing in and of itself might be, might be legitimate. So that's the first round, the first temptation. Next, There's round two in verses five through seven. Then the devil took him up to the holy city, Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And I admit, I don't know exactly what that looked like. I don't know how exactly that happened. Um, I think about the words of Paul when he wrote about his own experience in 2 Corinthians 12 12 he said I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven whether in the body or out of the body I do not know God knows that's what Paul said so what did this look like how did it happen was it in a spiritual state was it physical like Paul I say I do not know God knows Either way, the experience was real and the temptation was real and intense. So however the uh, devil was able to pull this off, he did. And he said to Jesus in verse 6, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. We would say today, Jump off a high cliff, for it is written, and here Satan appeals to Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Take a flying leap off the temple roof, Jesus, if you're the Son of God. Because the angels are going to rescue you. Well, Psalm 91, that Satan quotes from here, it is a promise. Verses 1 and 2 is a promise that God will protect those who dwell in the shelter of the Most High. But there's, there's a limit And Jesus talks about that limit in verse 7. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Yes, Psalm 91, verses 1 and 2 is a promise of God's protection, but it's twisting the scriptures. To turn that promise into a license to make dumb, reckless decisions that basically force God into a corner. Craig Blomberg makes this remark in his commentary We must not test God's faithfulness to his word by manufacturing situations in which we try to force him to act in certain ways. That's the sin that um, Jesus was using the word of God to guard against. That's the sin that Satan was tempting Jesus to commit. And I, I can think of some examples. I'm sure you can think of a lot of them. Maybe a silly example, but it is real, would be snake handlers, where they think that if you pick up a rattlesnake by the tail and he's alive and he's locked and loaded, that somehow that's a test of your faith. Well, not in light of Matthew 4 and verse 7, in my mind. And another example is if you're, if you're sick, someone is sick, and uh, they, they refuse to get medical treatment Not, they're trying to sort out the appropriate kind of medical treatment, but they refuse any sort of medical treatment. Why? Because they're they're going to trust God. But in the doctrine of the Bible, when you seek out medical treatment, that actually is the gift of God. Medical treatment is the provision from God. All of man's skill and wisdom and ability to heal, it's all the gift of our gracious God. And so if you're sick, pray for sure and see a doctor or whatever. But don't think to yourself that it's an either-or thing. If you're sick and you refuse treatment, you're putting God to the test. And another example is don't think it's okay to sin because after the fact, then you'll repent. That's putting God to the test. And it's not smart because the Bible says, Hebrews 3 and verse 13, that we should exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The the more we willingly give ourselves over to sin, the more we subject ourselves to the hardening impact of sin. And what often happens is, when you think later on, because you've had your kicks, and you think you've had enough, and now you're going to repent... There's nothing close to repentance in your heart. You're so hard-hearted towards the things of God. Don't think that. It's very deceitful, and it's putting God to the test. And I'm sure you can think of other examples. So that was the second temptation. Here's the third in verses 8 through 10. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And here's a hint in the text, by the way, that there's, there is something supernatural going on here because I don't believe we're meant to think that there was a particular mountain from which they could see every single kingdom In the world, there was some sort of supernatural uh, phenomenon going on there. But again, it was real, and the temptation was very real. And the devil said to Jesus, All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. It's interesting because up to this point, Satan's temptations have been more subtle. Turn these stones into bread. You're hungry. Throw yourself off the roof of the temple. The angels will rescue you. But now the cloak is pulled back and there's no subtlety. If you fall down and worship me, Um, did you guys hear about the Grammy Awards? That's not a trick question, so that if you say, yeah, I saw that, we're going to go, oh, you shouldn't be watching stuff like that. Um, but I did see a, a clip, and during the Grammy Awards, there was this really ungodly song called Unholy, and uh, they, they, they sang it during the ceremony, and there's a guy, I think it's the main artist or something or other, but he's dressed like the devil in red, and these ugly looking horns, and there's these half-naked figures bowing down before him, and Hollywood's elite are just going, "Yeah, this is great." <laughs> and then uh, at, right at the end, as they cut to commercial, it says, "Brought to you by Pfizer." <laughs> the marketing department at Pfizer needs to improve things a little bit. But anyway, for years and years and years, the Christian community has been leery of um, the music industry and Hollywood and all that, and it's been subtle. That was not very subtle. They were very proud of worshiping Satan, and that's what was reenacted, and that's what's going on here. But here's the thing all the kingdoms of the world and their glory were not Satan's to give. That's not in his jurisdiction. He is such a deceiver, isn't he? In Daniel chapter 2 and verse 21, it's the Lord, it's Jehovah, who changes times and seasons. He's the one who removes kings and Sets up kings. Satan is such a liar. But Jesus goes to the core of the issue. Verse 10, Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for, once again, it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 13. All these quotations, by the way, are from Deuteronomy by Jesus. Last I checked, Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant and he's quoting from the law. He's quoting from the Old Testament. If we would be like Jesus, we would have a high view of the authority of the Old Testament. But here's the thing. Maybe we're not going to be placed in a situation exactly like this. Maybe we're not going to write a song called Unholy and then sing it before the Grammys dressed like the devil. But there's lots of ways for us to essentially worship the devil. Look in Ephesians chapter 2. We looked at this passage in the adult Sunday school time. This is just one example. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's the devil. Satan is the prince of the power of the air. The devil is the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. It's the same devil who tempted Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. And Paul says that before we were saved, we walked... We followed him, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And you'll notice it doesn't say anything about being this blatant Satan worshiper. But he does talk about being a Satan follower. And that's really what the devil is after. Among whom, verse 3, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And so, to the extent that people live in the passions of their flesh, ignoring the word of God, ignoring what God says, and Their life is about fulfilling the desires of their body and their sinful mind. They're following Satan. Satan is having his way with them. So we're familiar with this temptation. Back in Matthew chapter 4, the result, verse 11. What was the result? Then the devil left him. We're told in the New Testament, James, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Jesus resisted the devil with the word of God. And the devil left him. Now, it's interesting at this point to compare other temptations, other trials that Old Testament figures endured. So, for example, we're told in the New Testament that Jesus is the second Adam, Well, the the first Adam fell. He and Eve, Adam and Eve, were tempted by the devil and they were deceived, but they complied with uh, Satan's temptation and they fell, and therefore Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden. Think about the nation of Israel. Um. Israel was called God's son. Jesus is the ultimate, incomparable, unique son of God. Israel was tried, tested for 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Israel failed the test. Israel fell and sinned. And ultimately, Israel was vanquished. She was conquered by her enemies. So you contrast that with this result from Jesus' temptation. The devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Jesus was not expelled. Jesus was not vanquished. Jesus conquered Jesus overcame this temptation, the this series of temptations, no doubt the intensity and evil nature of which we will never comprehend. But Jesus conquered. Jesus overcame. Jesus is our great high priest. Jesus is the second Adam who, unlike the first Adam, passed the test and represents his people not in his fallenness like the first Adam, but in his obedience and in his victory and in his righteousness. This is the Son of God. And then there's some takeaways. And there's a lot of takeaways, but I have three. It's hard not to make these connections. So the first takeaway from the temptation of Christ is to beware of false doctrine disguised in proof texts. Satan knows the word of God. Book Chapter and verse. He knows how to recite the Word of God. He knows how to have a list of Bible passages, proof texts. But Satan is really good at twisting those scriptures. Twisting the scriptures is basically making the word of God say or mean what it doesn't say or mean. And really you can do that to any any literature. And the way that you do that to any kind of literature, really, or any example of literature, is to take it out of context, to, to wrench it out of context. And I don't mean by quoting just something out of its context, but by quoting it and using it, applying it in a way that's actually consistent with its context. Not taking it out of its context and then using it in a way that uh, just doesn't line up with its context. This is why the three most important factors in biblical interpretation are... Context, context, context. There's the immediate context. The, the flow of thought by the author, the, the overall theme of the individual book. There's the context of the story of redemption. Where where is the passage? Where does it lie in terms of God's unfolding uh, plan of redemption? The, the story of redemption the context of the whole Bible. What does the rest of Scripture teach on the subject? And when a passage from the Bible is used in a way that contradicts its context, then it's Scripture twisting, hence the the graphic. I, I want you to know it took me a long time to get my Bible to do that. Another way to put this is Scripture interprets Scripture. So the Bible is the the devil, excuse me, Satan. He's the deceiver. And the, the primary way, I would say, in which he shows himself to be the deceiver, the slanderer, is by using God's own words, but twisting them to mean something that God never said that's what he does in the temptation of Christ and that's what happens ev- everywhere around us in terms of the religious scene there are cults that quote from the same bible that we do but they say that those passages mean something that they don't mean god never intended them to say and i'll give you can give you oodles of examples i'm not right now poke me later and i will but here's the second takeaway. Arm yourself with the sword of the Spirit. Arm yourself with the sword of the Spirit. Look with me in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 through 17. The Apostle Paul wrote, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, like Jesus did. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, which is why... As important as politics is, politics is not enough. Politics does not rise to this level in Ephesians 6 and verse 12. This is where the real battle takes place. And then here's what we're supposed to do. Verse 13, Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. of God. If Satan tempted Jesus by twisting the scriptures, he will tempt us in the same way. Christians don't have the liberty of thinking, I don't need to study the Bible. I'm going to leave that to the seminary professors and to the leaders in the church. I'm just going to Come to church once a week, and my Bible is going to collect dust on the shelf or whatever. I don't have to think through the doctrines of the Bible. Oh, yes, you do. Unless, unless you want to fall before the devil's temptations, arm yourself with the sword of the Spirit. Read the whole Bible. Not necessarily in a year, but read the whole Bible so you do. You, you are exposed to the whole context of the whole Bible. Learn the story of redemption. Learn systematic theology. By the way, um, this is one purpose for expository preaching. One reason why I believe that Pastors are called by God to, to preach the word, that word being the 66 books of the Bible, as they were delivered by God, by inspiration to the church. It's not just for us to learn and hear and obey the contents of God's word. It's actually also to model biblical interpretation. It's supposed to be a model so that the people of God can understand how to rightly divide the word of truth so that you are armed against your adversary, the devil. And so you're not quickly defeated by the next young, handsome, nice-looking, moral guys with white shirts and ties that say elder when they're 18 years old. Oh, we're Christians just like you. Oh, really? Well, my Jesus is not the brother of Lucifer. How about yours? Etc. Arm yourself with the sword of the spirit. And then finally, trust in our great high priest. Trust in our great high priest. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 11 through 16, we read, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus can relate with us. We can relate with him. It's amazing to think that Jesus really was tempted in all points even as we are. And yet he was without sin. So do you remember What Jesus said before he was baptized when John the Baptist tried to stop him. And Jesus said, Permit it to be so in order to fulfill all righteousness. And then, and Matthew's language suggests that it's immediately after that, the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Here is more of Jesus fulfilling all righteousness. He identified with us in his baptism. He had no sins to confess. He had no reason of, uh, no need of repentance. And yet, he subjected himself to John's baptism of repentance. And then here he goes into the wilderness and he defeats the devil. He endures temptation. He fulfilled all righteousness. Righteousness. He is our great high priest. He's not only sympathetic toward us, and he is. There's no problem. There's no trial. There's no temptation that you can't bring to Jesus. But more than that, he passed the test. He shows himself to be the qualified, holy, God-appointed great high priest. He has the very righteousness of God to offer. He really is holy and harmless and undefiled, unblemished by sin. It's true that he knew no sin. And so when you come to Jesus and you put your trust in him, God imputes the obedience, the righteousness of Jesus to your account. And look at how complete it is. Look at how tested it is. Look at how glorious it is. And this all comes through simple trust, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He and he alone is worthy of our confidence. He and he alone gives us hope, the promise of eternal life. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Jesus, our great high priest. We thank you for this account from Matthew's pen as the Holy Spirit carried him along to write. But we thank you for the event itself. And we thank you for the suffering that Jesus endured, not just on the cross, but even in his life, he suffered during this period of temptation. And Lord Jesus, we do want to thank you that you passed the test. You withstood the series of temptations, you passed the test. And you conquered the devil. And you are our second Adam, our great high priest. Would you please, Lord, help us to learn lessons from Jesus' temptation. And Lord, we pray that you would open blind eyes and soften hard hearts and unstop deaf ears. And draw sinners to Christ even today. We pray in his name. Amen.